All right, so today we're going to start a little differently, and we're going to start uh, a little bit with some stuff that I encountered this week, and then we'll, we'll get into the actual lesson. Um, and I think it's interesting that, you know, we're all living this Christian experience, and we're supposed to share with each other what we encounter and what God shares with us. And I feel like something happened this week that, uh, that I want to talk about a little bit. We'll see if we'll engage in some thoughtful discussion. Um, the first thing I want to look at is John 13, 34, and 35. And uh, if you could turn there, it should be a familiar passage uh, for you. Um, and I'll just read it in, in the spirit of time, but you can keep turning there. So John 13, 34, and 35, uh, this is words of Jesus. And he says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so that you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We've referenced that particular verse in here quite often. Uh, and it is one of those outward displays that shows the non-believer or people outside the faith uh, that, that we are disciples of Christ and it's how we love one another. Uh, has anyone ever encountered uh, some of the nastiest, meanest people might be other Christians? Has anybody just noticed that? That sometimes it's church people that can get in our way? And I saw that this, this particular week and I, I was reminded of this verse uh, and I thought about you know, someone hindering the gospel, someone tearing down another believer and how incompatible that is with these direct words of Jesus. Uh, so just a reminder that we are supposed to love one another in such a way that people outside the faith would know and experience uh, Christ as well through us. Um, any, any words of comment there? I have heard of you. Yeah, so that's one of those. When somebody says something like that, I'm thinking about how I'm going to act today when I go to lunch. And I'm going to remember what you said, right? And that's that accountability that we should experience in the faith. And we don't want to be one of these people, right? I don't want someone at the fort to you know, talk to somebody in the next little you know, cubby and say, man, that guy was a jerk. <laughs> you know, how demanding was that? You look like another one of those church people. Um, any, any other experiences with this this week the other thing i encountered this week is around giving and we'll look at second corinthians 9 6 and 7 and then malachi 3 10 malachi 3 10 i actually referenced a few weeks ago uh, and it's again going to be a very familiar passage to you uh, but first we'll read second uh, corinthians 9 6 through 7 and we talk, think about giving uh, not only of our, of our uh, tithes, we also think about giving of our talents and our spirit and all of that. It says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Uh, when he says... Uh, not reluctantly or not under compulsion. I think there's, can we pack in to get two available? I think there's two over here available. Good morning, y'all. How are you? So when, when, uh, when Paul's writing here and he's talking to the church at Corinth, he says, 
you know, not to give reluctantly or under compulsion. What's he mean by that? Yeah. You ever felt that, that thing that rises up in you and you see the plate coming by and the person next to you gave and <coughs> you know that you get paid every two weeks and you're wondering what they're going to think about you and you don't put something in the plate? Am I the only one? No. <laughs> so seriously, that, that's compulsion, right? If I were to go to my wallet right then and say, well, because I don't want these people to think that I'm some kind of loser and not giving, I'm going to be compelled to, to give something. Right? I mean, we have those fears. We have those thoughts that go through our head. Uh, giving reluctantly, obviously. You know, we, you said, hey, we'd rather be giving this money to something else. One of the other ways that we can give reluctantly is if the gift comes with conditions. And that is that this church is going to use this money the way that I think it should be used. Is that our decision? Is that our responsibility? What if we were just going to help a brother or sister in Christ? Do we give that money with conditions? Not supposed to, right? But we have that, that human side of us that rises up and says, hey, I gave that for a purpose, and I'd like to see it fulfilled my way. And if it's not, you know, now I want to hold some conditions on that. I actually saw that play out this week. I think that's sick. I think it's perverted. Joe? I don't know if you said it already, but also there's the big factor of love being uh, how we do it where our hearts can do it with love because it really says that it doesn't count if we don't because you know, if we're not going to do it out of love we just, uh, just get it done and get it over with it doesn't really count the way we think it does yeah. I think we want to do it to see what we can get but just, he's just trying to teach us that well, we, we, yeah, we live in a world that's really designed around, a society that's designed around when you give something you see some reward right? you see some, there's an action and then there's this reaction it's not the way the household of faith is supposed to work we, we give it, and then we trust God to work it out according to his purpose and his, his good plan. And I don't know if anybody else is wired the way I do, but when I hear the phrase, this is how we do it, uh, I think of the song by Montel Jordan. <laughs> uh, and it's now playing in my head. Um, hey, sing it for us. No, it's not that I, I don't know you that well. I sing only in the shower, okay? That's, that's the only place I have good, uh, good uh, tune. Uh, uh, so, and then Malachi uh, three ten. Uh, this this is one, and and I had this imagery this week that was kind of weird, and I'll I'll talk to you about it. it. Says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. When we think about that, we we literally picture that there's some overflow in heaven and someone cracked a window and it just started flowing out, right? And that, that is something that God says that he wants to do. Test me in this and see that I won't do that. Um, what, what about whenever we give reluctantly or we give out of compulsion or if we retract our gift when we're not personally, humanly satisfied? I had this image of that window being thrown open again and all that stuff being sucked back in. Now, I know God is uh, omnipotent. I know that he knows the heart of the giver before the gift was ever given. 
And I, I know that in, in his uh, wisdom, he probably prevents that blessing from going out because he knows there's already something happening. I, mean, I know he's smart enough to do that, and he can handle that and see the future. But in my mind, there was this visual of that, that blessing flowing down, and then there was that maybe somebody flipped on the vacuum cleaner in heaven and said, <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to experience a vacuum of God. Right? I don't want him to remove his, his blessing on me or my family or anybody around me. And I was just reminded this week, this week that when we give, you know, that we're supposed to give and trust. And that he says it's an opportunity to test him and that he, he rewards those that, that do that. And I'm going to try and live by that. And then finally, uh, this idea of not hindering uh, the gospel. And we'll look at Acts uh, 5, 38 through 39 there. Uh, and this, again, is Paul, uh, and he's giving an account of, of why he does what he does. Uh, and there's some stuff going on in Acts that, that uh, gives a, a great opportunity for there to be a test. Uh, it says, therefore, in this present case, I advise you, leave these men alone, exclamation point. Let them go, exclamation point. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. I think that's a, it's an important reminder, and it's an important test for us, that when we find ourselves in a spot where we're at contention with those that are working the gospel, and if we can't seek uh, unity in the gospel, to simply walk away. Let, let these people go. Let God deal with them. I don't want to be the one wrestling with God. I don't want to be the one, you know, to fight with him. I would rather let these people go, right? Leave, leave them alone um, and let God deal with them. If they're wrong, <laughs> they're going to fail. That's, that's the promise we have here. If they're right, <laughs> God's going to succeed through them, right? So those were just a few things that I encountered this week. Uh, I hope those things ring true to you. I hope as you're living and walking in this life that you'll bring things back for all of us to wrestle with. Um, so this week, uh, think about loving and giving and not hindering uh, the, the work of others that are out there uh, striving in the faith. So um, questions on that? Comments? Weird? I think I said it before another time, and it's kind of a different point I was putting on it, but I kind of go off in a kind of different direction, but maybe too much time with this, but the big thing I remember being taught a while back was that, though, is that there was that story about Pastor Paul giving money to a guy in public, and the guy went off, God did something not good with it, and somebody, most of you probably heard that, but that I remember a friend of mine who's a pastor up north, he said to me, you know, one of the big things he'd say is, noticing, if you're not sure this guy telling you, someone asking for money, is to find out what the person really needs, because if we don't really look into that too you just gave money freely a lot of times there's something different they need than money all the time it can be something deeper than that yeah money might just be a conversation starter right they, they might need Jesus they might need a blanket they might need something totally different than what you're offering money is often the easiest thing for us to just sort of put out the window and hand out I'm not saying it right but yeah. I know they talk about you know, feeding or teaching the guy to fish too so he can yeah. Do that for instead of just doing it for them all the time, paying their way through something. Yep, good example.
Well, let's talk about this uh, session two lost. And sorry for the 10 minute aside there, but if I didn't say that, it was going to uh, explode inside of me. So I appreciate the, uh, the extra indulgence of time today. Um, so I, again, I told you earlier, I was supposed to hide my keys from you and you were supposed to go on some kind of a, a hunt, find my keys. I uh, was chosen not to do that as the icebreaker. Julie looks confused. She came in a little late and missed that story. Uh, this material's good, but every now and then a little funny, and it suggested that I hide my keys. And that you're supposed to find them, and they were, I was supposed to turn that into somehow tying it to uh, the lesson. Uh, but instead, we'll ask the first question that's on page 17 in your book, and that is, what was your most memorable experience being lost? Any form of lostness. So this is embarrassing because I was a forester, or am a forester, I'm supposed to know how to find my way around in the woods. We went for a hike when I was in college, and it was supposed to be 13 miles. We spotted a truck, we started at the top of the mountain. We got six miles in, and my buddy goes, keys for that truck are in that truck. So we turned around and we went back. We got the keys and we offloaded most of everything we needed so that we could make time. So 6, 12, 18, blew right by the corner we were supposed to make <laughs> at like noon. And about 9.30 that night, I'm in the, on my knees in a blacktop road going, please stop and pick me up. <laughs> I don't have any water left. I don't have anything left. It's a long day, but we survived. Imagine there were a few nerves there, yeah. a few fears. Yeah, and then uh, who stops for a guy in the dark that's on his knees in the middle of the black top <laughs> road? <laughs> Not me. <laughs> uh, we were lucky. Uh, any other stories of lostness? Back in the 80s, I went to uh, Epcot with my grandparents. And back in the day, the train or whatever rolled through just the parking lot. So here comes the train. My grandparents like, hurry up, get out. So we all got out, hopped on the train, spent the day at Epcot. Now it was time to come back to the car. And we couldn't remember where we parked the car. So we walked that parking lot. I can remember, and it was hot summer. I remember that my shoes, the soles had begun to melt. Like we just made laps through the parking lot in Epcot, yeah. Wow, lost, lost car. Yeah, it wasn't no beep beeping on the floor. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's before the panic button, right? I mean, that's when you put somebody on your shoulders, probably the best thing you can do. What do you see from up there? Any other good stories of lostness? Julie? Well, I've gotten lost more times than I can carry it count. I, I don't have a sense so of So you lose easily. To speak of. Okay. Yeah. But when we moved to, when I moved to Indiana, Indiana, if you've been there, is flat cornfields. And everything looks the same, which is, <laughs> it's hard when you're an easily lost person anyway. And I got hopelessly lost in the country roads in the cornfields one day, which is, it's easy for me to get lost anyway. But I called him, and I, I'm completely lost. I don't know what to do. I don't, I need to pick the kids up in an hour. I had Ross then, and I don't know, I, I need to pick them up. I don't know how I'm going to get there. And he said, what road are you on? I don't know. <laughs> what direction are you going? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> what road were you on before this road? 
I don't know. <laughs> and every every answer, every question he asked me, I don't know. I have no idea where I where I am. And he finally got to Julie. Where is the sun? <laughs> so I think I am the sun. <laughs> and and by that, I mean finding the sun. We somehow navigated me back to a road that I knew where I was, but it took a while. That was, that was bad. Did they want to be a 60 or find my phone or anything? No, we didn't have yeah. This was before any of that happened. Prior, prior to technology. And, and that's was, how spoiled we are now. Yeah, at that time I sat in a little cubicle with four, there was four of us in this little area, and I hang up the phone and they just look at me. <laughs> she doesn't, doesn't have good directions. I don't know what you do with so uh, my, my mother lived in Illinois 60 years and always lived in the country and lived there 60 years before she realized that all the country roads are laid out on a grid system and they have numbers like 1000 North, 1001 North, 1002 North, 1000, you know, and she would become lost and my dad would always say, what's the sign say? You know, and to him it was very intuitive, but to her it was super easy to get lost in this grid of country roads that were well labeled and well numbered in a way that makes sense. Um, so some people lose easier, easily, more easily than others, right? Um, so let's uh, let's flip over to uh, the Bible meets life section, and we'll get somebody to to volunteer to read that. But the point is, without Christ, we are hopelessly lost in this life. And it sounds like some of you could be hopelessly lost easily uh, on a nice country drive. So uh, somebody read that Bible Meets Life section, please. And then just the contrast, right? Illinois, Indiana grid system. Then you come here, and we got 54, 54 east, 54 west, right? What? Let's just name everything 54. Right? All right, who will read that for us? My brother and I often went deer hunting with our dad. On one trip when I was a teenager, we drove into the woods about an hour before sunrise. It was extremely foggy. As we exited the truck, we took different paths to hunt for the day. The problem was I chose the wrong path. I walked confidently for 20 minutes before I realized I was lost. I've been lost in a wholly, I've been lost in a wholly different and far more serious way. And you have too. We were born lost. Whether we realize it or not, we're lost. Jesus, just because we think we're on the right trail doesn't mean we are. We're lost when we're not where we're supposed to be. But we don't have to stay lost. Lostness, our sin and rebellion against the Holy God, is a key theme in Scripture. But God's love for us is even an even greater theme. Jesus told a parable that brings these two themes together. We are lost, but thankfully we can be found. Yeah, so we're going to break into the parables today. And it's a common one, one familiar for all of us. And that's the, uh, the lost son. Uh, and it's a, a story that is, seems impactful every time we, uh, we read it. And uh, we'll, we'll do just that today. Uh, let's look at Luke 15, and if somebody will read verses 11 through 14. And I find that I really like Luke's version and, and choice of words in this particular one. Will somebody read that first passage, please? Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and it began to be in need. Yeah, so what we see here is something common in all the parables, and that is that there's, there's a part 
gospel in this, and there's a part common sense. That's, that's what makes it a parable, right? It's a story that appeals to some of our human nature where we would say, we would look at this and go, oh, wow, this is silly, right? Who, who, would, who would do this? But all of us do this. And that's the, why, that's, that's the reason why Jesus is speaking using these parables is he's appealing to our human nature and the fact that we've all done this. Um, and there's also one part Jewish tradition that goes along with this common sense, and that is this younger son demanding the inheritance and then wishing to depart and to separate. That's something that they actually could do legally, and, uh, and that's why it comes in the form of a demand. The child says, Father, give me my share of the state. He doesn't you know, end that with a question mark. It's not, Father, would you please give me a share of the estate? It's that I'm a co-laborer with you in this estate. We've made all of this together. Therefore, you owe me. And by law, the son could demand that at any particular time. And the father's prepared to do that. He has to have enough assets set aside to actually divide that and to share that, that portion of the estate with the son at that time. And do you notice that he does it? Right? There, isn't, there aren't any verses here about how they argued in court or anything like that. He just does it. He gives it freely. Whoa, fight club next door. <laughs> um, crazy. Um, so it says not long after that, the younger son takes up all he has and he departs. Um, but he didn't go immediately. It just says not long after that. What do you think is going on there? You ever had anybody? that uh, sort of demands everything. They kind of, they, they, they want their stuff, but then the plan's not really fully baked. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, they've, they've kind of packed, or they say, that I'm, we're moving, like I'm doing something. This is one of those that's appealing again to our common sense, where the kid says, give me all of my estate. I have these big plans, I'm gonna go and do something, I'm gonna chase some dreams. But he doesn't really have a plan. This is that sort of uh, half-hearted, haphazard nature of humanity that we're seeing play out here. Um, so what are some of the things that lure people away from a relationship with God? When have you seen, or why would someone choose to live apart from God? Do you have any examples where you've seen someone sort of move away from their Heavenly Father? Have you seen things of this earth lure people away from the relationship with their Father, their Heavenly Father? What are some of those things? Yeah, so selfishness, right? Do our own thing. What big plans did this guy have? Says he squandered his his living, his uh, his wealth in a distant country, in wild living. He was enjoying life, right? I mean, he he was out doing all the things he knew he wasn't supposed to be doing and really living it up. The modern-day equivalent is going to Vegas and just blowing it all. And everything that he imagined of wild, lavish living, I mean, it's all there, right? And you can come home just as broke as this guy could. And there are people that are making those silly decisions still, still to this day. Um, look, when we're talking about lostness, right, there's this idea of being spiritually lost prior to Christ. But what happens when you get lost after Jesus? What do we call that? Backsliding is kind of the fancy church word, right, that makes us feel not too bad about what we're doing. What does, I don't hear that word anymore. I've right. 30 years since I've heard that word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what's, the, what's the real term? The 
Rebellion? Rebellion. Yeah, it's rebellion. It's rebellion against God. Uh, and how does God view rebellion? He views that as sin, right? And sin creates distance between father and, and his children. Uh, now, it's not the same distance that exists between a father and a lost child, right? Um, what's, what's the condition there? What's the difference from God's perspective between a lost child and a rebellious one? be the difference in your child being lost and wondering away and your neighbor's child being lost and wondering away. Well, in, in one case, person is still saved. In another case, right. person is not. Yeah. Still your kid versus not your kid. Yeah. The lost kids doing what lost kids do and they're being drawn by the sort of overarching love of God, right? The, the plan of God to redeem humanity. And then you've got a kid that's already been found and has now chosen to be lost again through the act of rebellion, what's that like? What's it like when your kid thumbs their nose at you? There's a different element of accountability, right? The first person, the first kid stands accountable by God's creation and all that they can see and God's call on their life uh, to, to be redeemed. The other person's already been redeemed. Right? That, that, that call, that message is very different. Uh, what was God's message to the children of Israel as they rebelled? He often punished them or allowed them to experience grief to the point where they turned back toward him. Paul gave a great example today, uh, and it's a king that was carried off to Babylon with a hook in his nose and in, in the latter days of life turns back to God. Uh, this is the guy that sacrificed his own sons uh, to false gods. Um, so this act of rebellion can get, often get a very different response um, from God, but that's not what this parable is going to show today. Let's flip over to Luke 15, 17 through 19. Will somebody read that, please? When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread Yeah, so there are some flyover verses here. Again, that's the risk in all of these. I would encourage you to go back and read the full chapter of Luke 15. Uh, but we kind of cut to the chase, and that is the, the kids at rock bottom. Um, and you can ask the, the reasonable question, and that is, uh, is this some form of punishment doled out by the Father? And in this example of the parable, is it? Does the Father that he's received his estate from, from, is he having anything to do with this current? He's not, right? This is just a natural human end to human stupidity, right? This, this isn't God punishing the kid at all. Now, the Father has allowed the kid right, to go off and, and do and acquire uh, the things that he wants to do. Uh, and with that, he's, he's sort of turned, you know, a bit of a blind eye to it. But he's not actively pursuing or tormenting or, or causing this person to feel he just, uh, pain. He just, he just removed his, his oversight and his blessing. And then the kid comes to his own conclusion that there are hired hands at dad's house that are doing better than I'm doing. 
And does anybody know what he's actually doing? What's he doing for work right now? Slopping hogs. He's working, working pigs. <laughs> and in, in some of the flyover verses, he actually makes a, 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 a sort of a, an epiphany. He says, even the pigs are eating better than me. Like, I should just get down there with them. I would be better off. And they use pigs in this parable for a reason. Pigs are the lowest form of animal in the Jewish tradition. If you're a pig, I mean, you're below everything else. And this guy is at a point where he says, man, even the pigs are doing better than I'm doing. So he's out of money, right? He's, he's on skid row. Uh, and then he has this, this other thing, though, where he says, I'll set out to see my father. And he says two things. What does he say? He says, I've sinned against what? Against heaven and against you. I think sometimes we need to make sure we have the proper order of things. Sometimes I think it's easy for us to uh, go and seek forgiveness of our human brother and sister because it's easy, but we'll remain distant from God. Uh, in this particular case, name's God first, right? Heaven. I've sinned against heaven and against you. Excellent. So the father's the person that he's sort of squandering the stuff to, but he realized that that's not his first problem. His first problem is I've sinned against heaven. I'm living a life that is deplorable, uh, you know, compared to my faith, and I've disappointed my family. So getting the order right, I think, matters there. Um, so what part of the prodigal son's words most stand out to you? Is there something in that passage that really caught your attention? Good point. That's one of those where there's not really a lot to add. You just sort of swallow hard and go, yep, you're right. <laughs> um, so when have you come to your senses, senses spiritually? And is there anybody who helped you along the way or is actively helping you now? I would just encourage you to lean into those people in your life. They're really important. And they're often people that say the things you don't want to hear. Uh, that might feel a little bit abrasive. They might have some sharp corners. But I feel like God places those people in our lives to help us find that we really are at rock bottom, that we really are lead, leading lives that are worse than pigs. We're slopping around in the gutter when we've been called to be children of, of a king. You need people like that. You need people to be actively guiding you. Uh, and then I'll, I'll, I'll end this little section with, I know... Uh, a lot of people know what it means to be spiritually lost, but they don't know what it means to be found. The prodigal son knew he was lost, and he was about to discover what it was meant to be found. And this is the part of the passage that we all like so much, and it's Luke 15, 20 through 24. And can somebody read that for us as well? So he got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. 
Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead, and now he's alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. And so they began to celebrate. Yeah, and the other cool thing about parables, especially when Jesus is doing them, there becomes this father, God figure that everyone reading the story knows about. It's kind of like when you watch Chronicles of Narnia, right? And Aslan dies, and you're like, man, if I know where this, where this is going, you know, don't cry just yet, right? It's one of those uh, where, you know, clearly now we know that we're not talking about a, an earthly father and son. We're talking about God. And, and when he says that um, he got up and he went to his father, uh, that's an act of doing something. And that is a demonstration of what's required of us, and that is to see God, to see our condition, and then to actively seek him. And when we do so, what do we see? We see a father that can see us from really far off. And that's, that's one of those things we talked about a few weeks ago, that we can hide things from each other, but we have a God that sees everything, and he actually sees us from really far off. And some of us have, have walked these long, tortuous paths and feel like we're really, really lost. But as, as soon as we turn in an act of repentance, he sees us you know, through all, all of that. It says that uh, the Father was filled with compassion for him. Uh, is, that, is that how we feel when people rebel against us? Probably not, right? Part of my human nature wants someone to be accountable for what they did to me. I want them repaid a little bit. It says as soon as he turns and he sees him, He's filled with compassion, and he starts moving toward him. Uh, it says he ran to his son. He threw his arms around him. Um, he, the, the son, again, co- you know, proclaims, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me one of your servants. You know, all of that. And then the father puts on the robe on him. What's the robe signify? Right, it's sonship. We saw, uh, gosh, I just lost Jacob do it to his sons, Right. Uh, and they put this robe on him. It's sort of you're your part of the family. It's sonship. Uh, he puts a, a ring on his finger. What's the ring mean? What do they use rings for? Sign papers. It was their... Yeah. <coughs> so it means that he has authority. He has the same authority he had when he left. He has the same authority of anybody else in the household. He put the ring back on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. What's the, what's the sandals on the feet mean? So he restored and provides all the basic needs of life. The sandals aren't anything super fancy other than sandals and everybody needs shoes. It's the, it's the food and shelter, right? All the necessities are taken care of as well. So first he restores sonship, he gives him authority back, and then he takes care of all of his needs. Uh, then, he, then he does what? After all that. Throw a big party, right? Um, that, that is what happens every time someone comes to faith in Christ. There's a, I, I believe there's a big party. Uh, and I believe that when someone turns in repentance uh, back to the Father, I, I think he throws another party. And uh, I, I think the point is that heaven is going to be a celebration. right? We're, we're going to enjoy the presence of God, and it's going to be a party all the time. right? Uh, we're, we're literally going to be praising him and being with him all the time without ceasing. It says we won't become tired. Nobody will become sick. Uh, that, that is what, this is a glimpse of what being restored to God will be like. And with my 10-minute aside here uh, that I started with, uh, we should probably conclude there so that you second service folks can actually find a seat and, uh, and get moving. 
Um, are there other thoughts on this, other comments to, to close us out today? I think it's, you said a lot really already, but just a lot of continuing to say about how our Heavenly Father is reacting that way, that there's stress and that that's what there is, that we can know he's, you know, that's how much his agape love is for us, that uh, he's going to turn around. And he's, he's not hurrying around, he's just there waiting for us. Yeah. I often find that even when I run down what feel like tortuous long paths uh, of rebellion, that in the act of turning, you almost get run over by God. You know, you turn around and you, you think you're going to have to follow this crazy path back to find him or he's going to be hard to find. But it's, it's almost like you stopped and you almost got run over by him when you turn around. And, and that's really a message that, that I hope we all have here. Uh, this, this father was expecting a son to return. He was looking for him. He was looking for him. Ours is too. I think we'll end with that. Um, if you like this parable, and it's a great parable, who doesn't like it? Starting in April in the women's Bible study on Wednesday nights, we're going to do a, a deep, deep dive into uh, this parable in a Tim Keller series called The Prodigal God. And we're going to spend six weeks on it. I've done the study before. It's it's really, really good. And so it'll be Wednesday nights from 6 to 7. It, it'll be convicting. So if you want to come, come. And for the ladies. I'm not going <laughs> to shut the door on anybody. <laughs> I was sitting here thinking, like, maybe I want to go. Um, <laughs> all right. Cool. Thanks for that.